to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. I once made a TV film about Gloria Vanderbilt. The nearest America gets to royalty, post-Simpson, pre-Martel. She hailed from one of the richest and the most powerful families in the United States and was the original tug-of-love child. The Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Morgans and Henry Ford were among the families that built America. The Vanderbilt fortune came from railways and shipping. Her father, Reginald Claypool Vanderbilt, died in 1925. On her father's death, the 18-month-old Gloria became heiress to half of a $5 million trust fund. While she was a minor, the trust came under the jurisdiction of her mother, but its control was challenged by Gloria's paternal aunt, a wealthy sculptor, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. In 1934, there was a bloody custody battle which shocked America and commanded every front page across the globe. It resulted in Gloria becoming Gertrude's ward. Gloria became an actress, a painter and a novelist. She had in all four husbands, including the conductor Leopold Stokowski and Sidney Lumet, the Hollywood film director. When I caught up with her to make a half-hour documentary for ITV, which I called The Year of the Rear, she was famous for a clothing range, especially Vanderbilt jeans. She'd become quite a force in design and textiles. In television advertisements beamed coast to coast across America, she sashayed and twirled in the skin-tight jeans which bore her name. Some in America were scandalised. This was not any old clothes horse. She wasn't of the nouveau riche or some jumped-up brain-dead celeb. This, after all, was a Vanderbilt. There was speculation as to whether the close-up of her bottom in the gene advertisements belonged to her or to somebody else. Did it show the super-pert posterior of a model, perhaps, edited in to look like Gloria's? There was no reason for this, other than marketing bilge and to sate the demands of the time, that models had to be flawless without a pinch of spare flesh. Not that she had any. Substituting a curvier behind was the kind of slight of bottom in which advertising scoundrels, egged on by the wishes of their clients, might indulge. I filmed at The Breakers, a Vanderbilt mansion, once the sprawling pile of another member of the family, Cornelius Vanderbilt II. An astonishing, ornate confection of 70 rooms and well-manicured greensward it was built in 1893, in America's Gilded Age, at Newport, Rhode Island, facing the magnificent rolling breakers 
of the Atlantic Ocean. Naturally, during the editing, I threaded in the song A Couple of Swells, immortalised by Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra, which mentions the Vanderbilts in the lyrics. The camera roved lovingly over the glittering interiors of the breakers, which for a time had been Gloria's breathtaking childhood home, and is now a national monument, one of the most visited houses in America. The Brooklyn-born, outspoken Jerry Della Femina, a leading American advertising man, gave me an entertaining and illuminating commentary about Gloria and the jeans industry. Being an advertising man, one of the hidden persuaders, as Vance Packard had called his seminal book on advertising, Jerry knew exactly what a TV documentary producer like me wanted, and for my interview, he slapped it on with a trowel. Jerry also wrote a book about advertising, and like The Hidden Persuaders, it became an influential bestseller. It was called From Those Wonderful Folks Who Gave You Pearl Harbor, Frontline Dispatches from the Advertising War. It's a great book, fun and informing, and is said to be the inspiration for Mad Men, the global hit television series. At his skyscraper office in New York, I asked Jerry to climb out through his office window, 80 stories high, give or take, and sit in the sun on a low parapet wall for the interview. He looked at me as if I needed treatment. You crazy? Probably, I said, clambering out after him. My idea was that the cameraman, by using the extended legs of his tripod, could get higher than Jerry and I as we sat and talked side by side. By being above us, he could see Madison Avenue far below with a sea of yellow taxis, like ants, one of the great clichés of New York. It made an attractive backdrop. Jerry gave me a lively and frank interview, as frank and as candid as only a Brooklyn boy can be. We dissected the lucrative promotional possibilities of Gloria's Bottom, the excellence of her genes, the history and the competitiveness of the New York rag trade, the commercial exploitation of the world-famous Vanderbilt name, and the often hilarious, but still deadly serious, cutthroat world of the American advertising industry. After the interview, we climbed back through the window into his office. Setting up the sequence, fixing the radio microphones, framing the shot and recording the interview had taken about half an hour. Jerry was a super-fast talker, an archetypal New Yorker. But back in his office, he was strangely subdued, slumped in the chair at his desk. "'Are you OK, Jerry?' I inquired. The colour had drained from his face. I was worried about him. "'The thing is, John,' I get vertigo. Oh no, why didn't you say? I didn't want to spoil the show. I'd never have asked you to do it, I said. Well, I've been scared of heights since I was a kid. Doesn't matter, it'll look great. It's the shot that counts. Probably helped me conquer my fears. I didn't think I could do it. What a trooper. I was impressed. He'd shown steel. Vertigo is terrifying. 
It was through such willpower he'd built an advertising agency with annual billings of hundreds of millions of dollars, becoming a Madison Avenue legend along the way. Gloria Vanderbilt's life reads like a Hollywood script. She was raised by her aunt Gertrude and grew up in a mansion on Long Island in Old Westbury, one of the wealthiest enclaves in America. Married four times, she was three times divorced, and she had four sons. At 17, she married a movie producer who was a cousin of Cubby Broccoli, best known for producing the James Bond films. It ended after three years. She was married to the conductor Leopold Stokowski for ten years and to Sidney Lumet, the film director, for seven. Her fourth and final marriage to Wyatt Cooper, an actor, author and screenwriter, lasted 15 years. Cooper was terribly handsome. He had matinee idle looks. He died following open-heart surgery. She had two sons with him, one being Anderson Cooper, a leading American TV journalist. Gloria's previous relationships included Roald Dahl, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, and the eccentric movie modal Howard Hughes. At the beginning, making a film about Gloria was not easy. The problem was not her, but an entourage which hung around her like barnacles on a harbour wall. I flew down with her and her party, her so-called advisers, from New York to Houston on the Gulf of Mexico in Texas. I was looking forward to an entertaining sequence with Gloria as she promoted her jeans in a supermarket. But the filming wasn't going well. She was on edge, guarded. She kept mouthing marketing claptrap, which I'm sure she'd been instructed to say. I knew there was a much more attractive Gloria trying to get out. All her life she'd been in the spotlight. She'd endured the full, merciless glare of worldwide publicity. Not all of it flattering. If she was suspicious, it was perfectly understandable. But it seemed to me that those who were supposed to be calming her fears were doing anything but. Once I succeeded in winkling her away from her posse of chaperones, the real Gloria, well, frankly, was charm itself. I told her there was only one golden rule. Be yourself. Relax. Say what you want to say. She was knowledgeable about paintings, being a good artist herself. When she and I visited a gallery, unencumbered by her entourage and my film crew, she relaxed. I'd stood the crew down so we could spend time together getting to know one another. The success of the film depended largely on the rapport I could establish with her. It was vital that she trusted me. In the art gallery, a huge, beautiful painting by Mark Rothko, one of my favourite artists, caught my eye. I was able to sound more knowledgeable than I was, having just read The Rothko Conspiracy, which detailed the ferocious battle for his estate. Our mutual liking for Rothko would be an icebreaker. We had lunch in an obscenely expensive country club restaurant, having dropped in 
without having booked. The car park overflowed with Ferraris, Lamborghinis and stretch Cadillacs. The restaurant was packed. Oh, I'm sure they'll be able to squeeze us in, Gloria smiled. The next minute or two would be a small display of the Vanderbilt influence. She was instantly recognised and the people on reception went into meltdown. As if by magic, the best table became suddenly available. As we threaded our way through the restaurant, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. Other guests turned and stared, first agog and then delighted. They stood and clapped. Texan oil and cattle barons raised their Stetsons. Platinum-haired wives cleared our path. Tables were pushed aside. Diners hollered their delight, patting her on the back, pumping her hand, offering their serviettes for her to sign. She had arrived unheralded, an exalted legend of the capitalist class which had built America, and which, in turn, had bestowed on the Vanderbilts their power, treasure, and diamonds as big as plover's eggs. Texans love their heroes. Capitalism rules. They saw her as one of their own and fated her for it. You could feel the love. In that crowded room, it was tangible. Over lunch, she was gracious, amusing and discreet. I promised that I wouldn't use a tape recorder or take notes. I tried and failed to get her to talk about her relationships, as any journalist might, and about the rumour that the delicious Holly Golightly in the enchanting Truman Capote film Breakfast at Tiffany's was based on her. She smiled, touched my arm and said something along the lines of, Nice try, John. Don't you think Moon River is just the most beautiful song? It is, and in the poignant breakfast at Tiffany's, it was especially affecting. On art, geography, history, fashion, textiles, her new range of genes, she was forthcoming. On relationships, even though we had by now built up a rapport, you can usually tell if somebody likes you. She simply wouldn't be drawn. Journalism aside, who could blame her? Marriages, family, lovers. It was all very personal, and really nobody's business but hers. Instead of talking too openly about her own life, she wanted to know about my world. Her charm was disarming. As is often the American way, she was refreshingly direct. Well, what do you make of me, she asked. And what do you do when you're not filming my jeans? I told her that I thought she was both lovely and fascinating, which was true. And in the course of the conversation, I said much of my life was really, well, chasing rainbows. I can't remember her exact words, but it was something along the lines of, do you know, that's like me. When you get to where you're going, it's never quite as good as you thought it would be. Doesn't matter if it's a painter, musician, somebody in business. When they find what they're chasing, they don't realise it. Or if they do, it simply doesn't live up to expectations. It's an illusion. Chasing rainbows, I said. We both smiled. Given your life and the people you've known, 
You obviously have an insight into films and music, I said. She looked at me. Nice try, John, but I'm not talking about any of those. You didn't mention business and money. I know quite a bit about those subjects as well. She was right, and we didn't talk much about jeans and textiles either. She laughed. I'd rather talk about Rothko than textiles. Now there's a real artist, she said. In a supermarket the next day, she twirled this way and that in her figure-hugging jeans, watched by a circle of mesmerised shoppers. The jeans bore her name and logo. Wasn't this type of touting a bit vulgar, I asked? Didn't flaunting herself look rather crass? Wasn't it all really a bit of a come-down for a Vanderbilt? No, she smiled. Selling and promoting her jeans, she explained, was simply business, and in America there was never anything wrong with that. She was proud of her designs. Perhaps my English reserve was showing through. In the US, such things can sometimes matter less, though in some places, especially about unofficial royals like the Vanderbilts, conventions can be much more arch than in the UK. What of the furore when she promoted her jeans on TV? Oh, that was all so silly, she laughed. It was just plain silly. Tell me about this, I asked, pointing at the logo on the waist of her jeans as she danced about, smiling and charming the customers in the grocery aisle. Tell me about this, the Vanderbilt duck. I was, of course, only teasing. John, she shrieked throwing her head back, laughing as the camera closed in. It's not a duck. It's the famous Vanderbilt Swan. It was a fun moment. If we hadn't forged a relationship by taking time off from her chaperones, she wouldn't have come across as naturally. Her charm helped to make the film beguiling, though I suspect the audience would have been much more interested in the Vanderbilt legend and in Gloria than in the ins and outs of the American textile business. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.